Good morning. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. and Alternative Parties Books Publisher sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Alternative Parties friends, we have another exciting guest on our podcast like we always do on our podcast. Her name is Nancy Wallace and she's running for office under the Green Party. So Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. Delight to be here today. Nancy, let us get started by you kindly giving us an introduction to yourself, a brief biographical sketch. I live in Maryland. I'm running for governor of Maryland. I've been with the Green Party 15 years. I'm uh, 66, and I have a career background, uh, both 15 years of uh, lobbying Congress for environmental issues, particularly international issues, and I now have 30 years of IT professional experience, uh, but also um, eight years as co-chair of the Montgomery County, Maryland Green Party. And I ran for Congress in 2016 uh, in in the Maryland 8th Congressional District as well. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. (laughs) There's a lot to do. So given those positions, it sounds like it's a very political experience you have. How did your past positions influence how you're running this campaign today? Well, I knew from the very start that as unpleasant as it is for a, a policy uh, nerd or, or junkie like I am, and like we probably all are, um, a lot of what you have to focus on as the candidate is the infrastructure and the administrative part of the campaign. So I learned that from my congressional campaign, so I jumped right in. And the other thing is I learned uh, how much people really appreciate actual proposals, commitments, and detailed programs being presented on the campaign website. So uh, as I did in 2016, I put a huge amount of material on the website. It's not just a bunch of pretty pictures and a, a lot of donate buttons trying to collect money. I really consider the, um, the, the electronic media, both the website and social media, as the major interchange with people today. The other thing that I learned is that how, how truly um, uh, effective the blackout is from the mainstream media. The Frederick News Post uh, in 2016 covered my campaign with equal column inches to the Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian candidates. And I did 25% better in their coverage area, their newspaper area, than I did in other parts of the uh, the district I ran in. So I think just having time to get um, to see how how truly oppressive the uh, mainstream media is and the two pre-Civil War parties that have put in legal and cultural means of oppressing independent, honest. And non-corrupt voices in our in our politics. Um, it allowed me to get over that depression and <laughs> just move forward. And so I feel energized, and I'm always always draw energy from the people. Uh, so uh, just going out and talking to everybody uh, throughout uh, a daily life on the street at the Labor Day parades, etc. I have to do that in order to balance and keep my energy up to to fight against this very unfortunate, unfair system. Sounds good. I never heard it described as the two pre-Civil War parties. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I came up with that one. It's it's pretty bad. They've been holding on a stranglehold to power for, uh, you know, literally 150 years now. 
The Democratic Party in the 1890s and uh, early 20th century completely opposed the right for women to vote. And I still see the same um, dragging uh, uh, unwillingness to really face up to the daily reality of our of our people and our values um, in the Democratic Party of today. If I heard you right at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about 15 years ago, you joined the Green Party. So what made you join the Green Party? Were you a former Democrat that became disillusioned, or was there another path to the Green Party? Uh, yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. Actually, I was brought up in a Republican household, uh, in what I call a rational Republican household, uh, where it was before the extremism uh, that started really with Reagan has continued to worsen, uh, where it was it was a set of values about the balance, where people would draw the line between uh, individual family and community responsibility. Uh, but I felt that the um, the community needed to be stronger, and I was a Democrat for 30 years, and I, I loved the, the compassion, the compare, uh, caring, uh, the progressive flavor of the Democratic Party. But as I got older and I started actually doing real civic activism and testifying and um, going to court and, and learning all the details about what was really going on, particularly in my own county, Montgomery County, Maryland, I finally realized, I, I did not want to admit this, but I finally realized that the Democratic Party was never going to uh, separate itself from its intimate relationship with the local real estate industry. They're always going to be promoting, they call it development, but it's really just real estate and construction and, uh, and growth. And any environmentalist will tell you that, you know, our little planet is only 7,000 miles wide. It's just over twice the distance from here to California. That's the width of the planet. That's it. And um, the fact that the Democratic Party was kind of so Jekyll and Hyde, it was so progressive on the outside in its rhetoric, and it was so uh, destructive to the established, sustainable neighborhoods uh, in Montgomery County. And, and they always uh, appointed a chair to the, real, to the land use planning board, just that one vote, but the elected representatives would always appoint someone who was very friendly to developers so they could separate themselves from the planning board decisions. They didn't have to take the political heat in an election year, and they only had one vote uh, that they had to vote in this this uh, the pro real estate person. And they've been doing it ever since. So I finally said no. And I looked around and, you know, looked finally at the Green Party. I don't recall exactly how I ran into it, but as soon as I read the values and looked at the national platform at gp.org, and met the local people, I said, oh, my gosh, this is this is my party. It's honest. It doesn't take a penny from corporations. It's, um, it, it's got feminism right up there in its top ten values. Um, it is for grassroots democracy, local economics, social justice, and, of course, ecological wisdom and climate change. And so now I feel like I just lucked out that, in fact, I'm so grateful to the thousands of people that have created and kept the party going since the 1990s that I now have a platform where I can actually speak the truth, both scientifically and politically, speak truth to the public and speak truth to the power. Excellent. What is ballot access like for you in Maryland? 
we have a requirement to collect 10,000 individual voter signatures on paper every four years in order to stay a qualified party. Or we're allowed, if we get 1% in the governor's race, for instance, what I'm in now as the Green Party candidate, if we get more than 1%, then we get two years of ballot qualification. So um, it actually takes tens of thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of hours to collect those signatures because you have to collect at least 15,000 uh, individual signatures in order to have 10,000 survive the, uh, the check by the local Board of Elections because people have to have put down their correct middle initial. They have to have put down their correct address where they are registered to vote. A lot of people don't remember exactly where they're registered. Um, a lot, sometimes their handwriting is illegible, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a huge effort, and it drains us for basically two of the four years each cycle where we're not we not allowed uh, energy-wise and, and money-wise. We can't go out and talk about the issues that we need to. So it, it is a massive um, boat anchor on the on the parties to do this. Uh, nevertheless, there's so much commitment to uh, to democracy in Maryland. We now have three what's called non-major parties that have gone through this process: uh, Green Party, Libertarian, and the Working Class Party. So. Uh, the uh, Republican and Democrats are not happy uh, about the fact that they have three candidates on the ballot with them uh, that uh, are, you know, going to at least drain their votes and, and really challenge their um, their nice messages they want to put out that they've got all the answers. So it's very tough, and uh, we've already actually won three lawsuits, the Green Party, uh, working with the Libertarians in the last 20 years. Uh, so we've, we've already rolled back a few of the small changes, but the idea that we have to have, we get, um, you know, we can get more than 10,000 votes for our candidates, even in a legislative uh, congressional district. So why do we have to go out and do it again? It's, it's part of the whole generation of oppressive ballot access uh, a movement that was instituted after World War II by the Republicans and Democrats in order to suppress the third party after the previous 50 years, had really made all the progress in the United States that we consider distinctive of the United States. Really, all the great ideas from uh, children not working in factories to the 40-hour work week, women having the right to vote, uh, the uh, anti-slavery and civil rights movement, um, all of those movements came from third parties before World War II, but the Republicans and Democrats have just suppressed that completely for the last 70 years. So That's did, a, lot, a long answer to your question. <laughs> sure. It's a very interesting information. It sounds like you have a good historical analysis of all this. Well, I like to do my research. I, I really um, am fir firmly committed to basing my position and my 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 decisions, my proposals on scientific evidence with respect to climate change, uh, with respect to toxic chemicals, getting rid of them in agriculture and industrial processes, and then using fact-based evidence for public policy proposals. Uh, for instance, the green mayor of Richmond, California, quite a few years ago, 
allowed her social services department to implement an experimental new program called Life Mapping, which did a, a focused mentoring and financial support program for the people most likely to be violent offenders in that city, and they reduced street violence 70%. So wow. I like to, yeah, I'd like to do research and um, both, as I said, on the on the science end and on the public policy end so that I don't care about political labels when it comes to actually rolling out policies and proposals. We need to do what works. And um, what's another great thing about running uh, as a Green, I really don't have to care about um, building up the institution of the Green Party or protecting and circling the wagons and, and fighting these silly little competitive fights with the other side, as they say. Um, I refuse to call the other candidates in the race my opponents, for instance. I really have to live and um, and talk as as I advocate, which is for a cooperative and collegial and respectful society. So I brought that attitude to the 2016 campaign, and I am bringing it to the governor's campaign as well here. So when's the deadline for your ballot access petition? Our next deadline is uh, actually in the uh, 2023, end of 2023. Um, okay. If, if I can get 1% in the governor's race, uh, we're good to go, and if we would then collect for the next four years. Uh, but we do not have um, a deadline this year, per se. Okay, so you're on the ballot. You're, you yes, won sir. that guy already. I sure am, and thanks to the many, many hundreds of people in, in Maryland that have collected signatures actually several years ago. Yeah, thanks to them. Good job. Yeah. So how do you plan to implement your Green Party vision as governor or as a gubernatorial candidate? Well, I think the steps that need to be done are fairly self-evident once you really read comprehensively uh, on the science and the proposal uh, program effectiveness. On day one, I have committed on my website to tap the Maryland emergency, it's called the Rainy Day Fund here. It's $2.3 billion in cash that we have in a bank account. And the um, a level of PFAS chemicals, toxic chemicals, also known as the forever chemicals, are quite high in a lot of Maryland streams and in the intake for our drinking water. And so the, on day one, my primary concern is protecting our babies from toxic chemicals that come through breast milk and infant formula. So on day one, we're going to take uh, funds from the Rainy Day Fund and we're going to buy reverse osmosis drinking water filters for every household in Maryland with a nursing baby or a baby on infant formula. We have to start cleaning, raising a, a healthy generation, and that means stopping the toxics from the very beginning. And the climate is, is the kind of overarching top priority of the campaign and the main reason that I run. And for climate, it's actually in my mind, I've been thinking about this so much <laughs> for the past 30 years, it's actually fairly obvious. The same rainy day fund will be used to start an emergency solar panel program covering all the parking lots in Maryland, starting with our public institutions, our state buildings, <clears throat> state office buildings, 
our schools, libraries, and universities. And we will cover the parking lots with solar panels and then continue on to the flat top roofs of large buildings like the Walmart and Target and start generating as much electricity as we can immediately. No delay. Every second counts on climate change. It's basically World War III. And <clears throat> the, the enemy here is just our habits and our fears and, uh, <clears throat> and our own inertia. And I don't um, have any problem presenting pretty major practical goals uh, for us to reach right away in the first few months. Uh, we need to then shut down the um, – oh, I would just say, of course, that massive solar panel installation program is going to provide job training and jobs right away so our unemployed can have access to that free training. And uh, then they will have a skill set that they can use not only in Maryland as we move on for additional solar panels on top of buildings, but also they'll be able to move throughout the country if they need to. They'll be a very valuable resource kind of up and down the East Coast. And the second thing I want to do is the easiest thing in the world, which is just stop unnecessary mowing of all of the state lands. The state itself, of course, owns hundreds of thousands of acres. When you look at the total ownership of the state highway system, of the uh, of the state universities, et cetera, and we will mow for all the safety needs, all the, the space, you know, at the side of a road. But we're basically just mowing right now the 1950s view of what looks good on a highway, the aesthetics. And we're not only polluting because those huge mowing machines are all fossil fuels, gasoline driven. We could also be using that staff money to do reforestation on other state lands. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's actually a very clear program. It's laid out on the website. The Chesapeake Bay is the world's second largest estuary, and it has the capacity with seagrass restoration to absorb uh, many gigatons of CO2. So the big distinction between my program and the Democratic program on climate change is that I really understand that we have to absorb the 130 years of CO2 and nitrous oxide that have already gone into the atmosphere. And the Democratic uh, message is, well, let's pass some bills that 10, 15 years from now, without causing too much discomfort, will reduce, mitigate, and adapt. And to me, that's just another phrase for failure. Uh, if the house is burning, as Greta Thunberg says, and she is my inspiration and her name is on my website, then if someone says, well, we're going to deal with this problem by just making sure the back porch doesn't burn quite as quickly as the rest of the house, that's failure, and that's the democratic message. I'm saying, no, we're going to put out the fire of the whole house, and we're going to rebuild that house with social justice, redistribution of wealth, change our early education to Montessori, which is a much more effective teaching system, and build home ownership uh, for the poor and disadvantaged with rent-to-own, fair mortgages, and full funding of uh, down payment assistance. We have so much to do, and there's so many wonderful, proven, practical solutions out there, but we need people who are not beholden to the established old guard. And Maryland has been a one-party, democratic-ruled state for over 50 years, 
the Chesapeake Bay has died on the Democratic Watch. I will restore the Chesapeake Bay on the Green Party Watch. Baltimore is not improved at all with the Democratic dominance in the state legislature and at the governorship. Um, and uh, we are a major state for uh, trafficking of women for sex slavery. And we have a problem with women being uh, trafficked in through Baltimore-Washington Airport from overseas, and we're a corridor for both women and drugs between Washington and New York. And all these issues, people are suffering and dying every day. Our children are sick from toxics. We have a huge amount of runoff of the very toxic PFAS chemicals uh, I mentioned earlier from the many military and Navy bases in uh, Maryland. We have a lot. It's an eastern state that kind of got a lot of bases early. And we have to help the military realize they need to help clean up and pay for those chemicals. Those chemicals pass through breast milk and they affect the brain development of the fetus and the baby after it's born. And we have to talk about these things and deal with reality instead of just the same old tired parties with the same old tired rhetoric that doesn't work. Sounds good. So what is your campaign strategy to get your message out to the voters? We are focusing on social media, bringing people to the website where we have this full set of detailed programs and, and commitments, scientists, citations, scientific papers, et cetera. So, uh, we are building the social media campaign. Uh, that's the primary outreach tool because we are blacked out by the mainstream media, uh, which is so, so sad. And uh, it's, it's so sad for America because, in fact, we really, we so-called uh, post-Civil War parties have generally been the source of innovation and progress in America. And I just, and so many people are disheartened. They think they don't count, but it's we're we're reaching out with these really solid, meaningful proposals that speak to your everyday needs through social media. And it's thank goodness for social media and the internet because we can reach directly into communities uh, that the mainstream media just ignores. That's good. Good way to leverage it. Thanks. Yeah, our social media director is 21. Oh my. Yeah, and he's far ahead of me on those issues. So I'm being tutored. That's good. So it sounds like you got a good team working for you. Yes. And fascinatingly, that team is spread all over the East Coast. It's not in person. And I never imagined that I would ever run a campaign or participate in a campaign where you didn't actually have a campaign office or campaign headquarters. And you didn't have... Um, you know, you didn't have to track volunteers and what time they were coming in and where they were going and the lit drops and all that. Uh, but uh, uh, some staff is in Florida, some is in Annapolis, some Vermont and New York. And these are people who are inspired by the uh, the ideas and values and the honesty of our campaign. And we have a lot of teleconferences. And it's, it's really amazing. I think it's both the natural evolution of communications technology but it's also very clearly a post-COVID campaign structure. And sure. people are so comfortable on teleconferences. And, of course, it's right in line with our values because we're not spending CO2 emissions getting together physically. So 
we can really get the best of people that are most interested and committed and just right for the job and have volunteered. Sounds good. Yeah, that sounds like a very innovative way to run campaigns. And our listeners out there will probably take heart in hearing that because they may want to help campaigns that are in different areas so they know that there's opportunities if they don't live in the district of the candidates. Yep. Yeah, I think it, uh, we have uh, a Green Party media person here who's uh, not only helping us with Baltimore, but he's also helping the Green Party governor candidate for uh, in Texas. So it's, it's really neat. Uh, and it, it gives you um, – it not only gives you power, but it gives you joy because you're – you're able to really hook your talents and skills and time directly into a campaign that that is most um, genuine for yourself. So it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful feeling, and I encourage everybody of every political persuasion to reach out and get active. Excellent. So, Nancy, how can our audience out there support your campaign? The campaign website is Wallace for Governor, W A. L L A C E Wallace for Governor dot us US because this is very much a team sport to reverse climate change and do it with social and environmental justice. So going to the website, you'll find the social media right there on the home page. So I think just read through the website and then follow us on social media and please push out those uh, three media, three uh, the Facebook, the Twitter. Um, and Instagram, and we will also have um, uh, YouTube and Reddit eventually, but right now we're focusing on the, the big three. And uh, that would be great. I do ask people if they want to support, if they would give $5, I would be very grateful. Anything more is fine. The upper limit is 6000 We haven't hit that yet. Uh, but I'm only really focusing on small donations, so $5. Or if you want to give as much as um, uh $41.40 because right now the world average carbon dioxide parts per million is 414. So if you want to do $41.40 kind of in the Bernie Sanders mode of his $27, uh, that would be great because that's way over the 400 parts per million that the scientists said was supposed to be our absolute maximum. But it's really whatever people feel like giving the social media push, particularly to friends in Maryland, is just the biggest thing we have. And the other thing I really want to clarify for the audience why Maryland is special, and I would ask for special support for my campaign, is that Maryland is the only state in the country where the governor sets the budget. The budget does not come from the legislature the way it huh. does in Congress. Yeah, it's amazing. Congress and other states. So I will have the opportunity to truly write a climate change emergency transformation budget. And under the state constitution, the legislature can only increase these funding lines. They can't decrease it. So huh. if, if I put in $100 million to put in extra insulation and solar panels on all the public housing in Maryland, there's nothing the legislature can do about it. It's a little bit um, excessive. I'm not sure I would have drafted it that way in the first place, but I do think it provides us a unique leadership opportunity within Maryland and the country to show what a, a state 
and communities can do together when the government is really helping them deal with the immediate crises and the positive solutions to to build us toward a just, prosperous, sustainable society. Sounds great, Nancy. Sounds great. Thanks. Nancy, we thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about your campaign, and we wish you all the best in the future of your campaign. All right. Thanks so much, Andrew. Take care. All right. All the best. Bye.